out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, always playing the finest in indie pop and beyond. And also, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the one and only Stephen Bird. He that used to be in the Swell Maps, plus a lot of other bands, which I won't name all the um, all of them. But um, recently, he appeared into my consciousness because he's done the sleeve notes for an album that is about to come out by the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters on Optic Nerve Records all the way from Preston. So um, with that in mind, I thought I need to have an interview with him. This is it and um, do enjoy. I think he sometimes goes by the name of Jalway Head. Indeed he does. Anyway, um, enjoy, sit back, relax. Uh, This is the opening bit after we introduced ourselves where I asked about those early formative years and this was Stephen's response. Stephen, it's over to you. Well, in my early teens, I was, uh, I was a music fan, and first of all, I was into soul music, oddly enough. I loved uh, uh, Tamla Motown and um, Stax um, label music, um, you know, uh, Dock of the Bay by Otis and Temptations. I loved some of those records. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> That's probably a little uh, surprising, maybe. Yes. And anyway, uh, I uh, out of that I got into um, rock music like uh, Led Zeppelin and the Who. Yeah. And uh, then I got into more experimental sounds. And the more I listened to more experimental sounds, the more I started to get an interest in making um, music myself. And I started experimenting with uh makeshift instruments and eventually I got a guitar and I started making uh uh well teaching uh, well learning about sound and uh what sounded interesting to me yes and I'm... then I started uh meeting other kindred spirits like uh Adrian who's uh at school with me and uh, we started um playing with other people, and it sort of metamorphosed into swell maps. Yeah, and did you, um, I mean, the, the 60s, I mean, the sort of the kind of counterculture and that sort of the hippie psychedelic kind of world sort of into your orbit at all during that period? No, not really. I wasn't into all that hippie stuff, and I thought it was a bit naff, and um, I only sort of got into a few particular things from the 60s a bit later mind you my older brother had some albums which i sort of tuned into there was a cream album i really liked so uh yeah there was a bit of interest in psychedelia even back then i suppose yes but the dawning of the age of aquarius did not enter your orbit at all well in the 70s uh there it was a bit kind of uh pessimistic in the 70s to yes. a great extent and things were a bit darker, I think. Well, I did. And, um, and especially living in the Midlands uh, in the early 70s, uh, you know, there was a lot of unrest and there was a lot of tension. 
and um, a lot of violence, actually, as well. I mean, there were bombs going off, and there were shortages, and there were rationing, uh, and there was uh, a three-day week. I was going to say about the three-day week, because I can remember one particular winter where we had to, there was some sort of timetable of when the electricity would be going off. So you had exactly. to sort of, you had yeah, to plan your day. Rationing. Yes, and um, I sometimes wonder if I'm sort of making that story up, but I'm sure it was true because there was always it's a lot of true. there was a lot of tension around the kind of Christmas period of because Christmas TV used to be quite a big thing back in the seventies, <laughs> and you never knew if there was going to be a strike and there would be no electricity. So there was a yeah, lot. Yeah, I mean, it seems inconceivable now. People don't. Uh, I mean, uh, that there are going to be problems, in my view, about power shortages uh, later this decade. Yes, I think there could be well, well and truly. So when you when you sort of got your was was the Swell Maps your first band that you got together? Well, um, there were uh, about half a dozen of us. Uh, well, initially four of us to be exact. There was me and uh, Nikki and Epic and Phones, and the four of us in various combinations uh, played. Uh, music together we just sort of improvised strange songs and sort of um, because we were untaught self-taught musicians we'd just sort of uh, make up strange tunes and sort of uh, uh, play along with each other in various permutations and it, uh, each combination duos and trios it, it, they all had different names it had only coalesced into Swell Maps in 1977 when we had a focus. Yes. And during that period, were you, had you sort of moved out of the Birmingham area and sort of gone to London by then? Um, Nicky moved... Well, he, he spent a lot of time in London from 1976. So he got an early insight into the punk scene, maybe 75, actually. Yes. And he sort of uh, encouraged me to come down and check it out. So I did. Yeah, I went to the, um, see, the, the Damned and the Adverts, a very early gig at the Roxy Club. Yes. In, in Gordon. And did uh, you... But I, I went up to Manchester, actually, to go to art school. Right. Which pissed him off. <laughs> he yeah. wanted me to... Joined him in London, but he didn't have anywhere to stay anyway. He didn't have a place I could stay in. So did you do a three-year degree? Yeah. And that helped shape your life. So when did you... Because having some well, kind of, yeah. Slightly, yes. Because cause a lot of the bands that I've interviewed from that sort of 80s period, they have a kind of a five-year narrative where they, they kind of got together, spend 12 months sort of fiddling around, playing and making a sound. And if John Peel gave them a play, you know, the single, they'd mm. often get, sometimes get a sort of John Peel session, and that would give people a bounce to do that first kind of album, which was often, you know, enough to get them sort of gigs kind of around the country. So I just wanted... Oh, yeah, well, that, that's, that's pretty much what happened with us. I mean, we made our first recordings in a, in a proper recording studio in 1977. We released it early 78, and Peel picked up on it very quickly, um, bless him, and uh, he offered us our first session uh, with him. Yes. Uh, so that was a way of developing material for the first album. 
Yes. Yeah. And who was your producer for that particular um, session? Oh, um, that I think was uh, Dale Griffin, the, the, the guy from Mott the Hoople. The, the famous. <laughs> and because a lot of people have had sort of conflicting kind of moments. Well, not conflicting, but some people had a good time and some people didn't have a great time with those sort of set, uh, peel sessions. And oh, we had a ball. Uh, in fact, we got uh, told we got into trouble in the first one uh, for... Um, something which was potentially dangerous, we were told. Um, in uh, a song, my song called Harmony in Your Bathroom, right. we, uh, we rushed it uh, for this overdub to get a, a big basin of water from the, um, from, the, from the toilets and started blowing bubbles into it. And they really freaked out. They, uh, it was a great sound, and they captured it, but uh, they freaked out and told, told us that um, uh, they'd ban us if we did that again because it was dangerous with all the mains electricity around. Yes. We didn't occur to us, of course. <laughs> and did you feel like, you you know, because cause obviously the 60s had been and gone and the 70s glam period was quite mm. was quite brief, really. Mm, but, yeah. And also it's, you know, like like with a lot of scenes, they, they do sort of, they start so well and optimistically and then sort of quickly become a bit tacky. I mean, did you feel that your, your timing with the, the swell maps was good? Because I spoke to um, Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness who just said, we were two years too early because we would have been punk, but we, you know, punk hadn't happened when we they appeared. So it was a bit like a lot of those punk bands went to see the uh, Doctors of Madness. Oh, well, yeah, I've heard that from a couple of bands, but um, if it happens, it happens really. I'm not going to comment about them. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, our, our timing was uh, fortunate. We were in the right place at the right time, I think. Yes. But so, uh, we were into punk. We uh, supported uh, a lot of the early um, the early practitioners on the UK scene. You know, I mean, Sub by Sect, brilliant. Uh, alternative TV, brilliant. People like that. Uh, early Banshees, uh, yeah, I was into all that. And Wire um, and Sex Pistols and The Damned, I, I loved all that. And uh, we all shared a, an enthusiasm for that. But, you know, it got a bit tawdry quite quickly and lots of um, people started uh, debasing it or devaluing it with their uh, sort of... Um, you know, they just sort of slavishly copy the Ramones or the Sex Pistols and not provide anything uh, more imaginative. Because like Mark Perry always used to say, here's three chords, you can do it, but try and do something with imagination, you know, rather than just copying people. Yes. And, uh, yeah, it became a bit of a drag after a couple of... Well, uh, after about a year but you know i mean we were swell maps was never your your average punk band anyway i'm not sure even if you could call us a punk band because we had so much more going on we did instrumentals we did slow songs we used piano and um, found objects and things like that you know because I know at the same time, or I probably around then, there were people like the Fabulous Poodles that were happening, and they, they were they were one of those bands 
because I remember a few of the members lived in the sort of Norwich and Norfolk area. I mean, they they were kind of just a bit too quirky and out there to be mm. kind of in any particular camp. And then you had people like Vivian Stanshaw as well, who oh yes, done did some amazing stuff. But again, I was it, uh, watching his film the other night. Yes, and the Henry at All Ends Men. A classic. The first time mm. you hear it, you, you're never the same again, are you? But um, yes, I just wondered if you'd also had that same feeling that the limitations of punk were, were sort of like pushing you into those kind of like being angry and sounding a bit like the Ramones meets, I don't know, the monkeys, I suppose, wasn't it really? Well, I mean, we had a collective vision and we just tried to focus on that while uh, the spark was still keeping us together. And, you know, we did two great albums together and then we split up. And uh, to to have continued would have been um, uh, that old thing about diminishing returns, perhaps. Yes. So uh, we just uh, and what you, did you know, what we had to do and then, uh, you know, uh, split up in 1980. Nice. No regrets. No, absolutely. And we, um, do you have many or memories of the sort of bringing the first album out? I just wondered if you felt like that was a, that was the absolute honeymoon, whereas the Jane from Occupied Europe was a little bit like the end of the story. Well, the way we worked, we we just booked a studio. Um, when we were all available, which was quite regularly. And um, we just went in to record the ideas that we had available at any one time uh, when we felt that the uh, they were ready to capture. We didn't actually record an album with all the track listing in mind at the time. We just assembled an album from what was ready and we tried to uh, program it in a way that seemed to make sense. And, you know, uh, even after the first album, there was material left over, despite how long it was. It could have been a double album in the event we did a single album with a a four-track EP. Yes. And then some of the uh, extra tracks. But, I mean, uh, the same with Jane from Occupied Europe. We were just continually recording, whether it's singles tracks or album tracks, and then we'd try and shape it into a record while we were going along. It wasn't like uh, a lot of bands do where they say, oh, well, we're going to record this list of tracks for our next album. We we didn't work like that at all. It wasn't like it was the... a it was a process, a very particular process we we used, which was very different to the the what was it Black Sabbath's first album where they just went in and recorded it all in a their set, their, <laughs> their set. current set because they nah, knew nah. We... Well, I mean, uh, for instance, uh, there's a very long track uh, on the first album called "Adventuring into Basketry," and that was completely improvised. You know, it's about six minutes long, and. Uh, that was completely unplanned. Yes. We just let the tape run after um, a song called Gunboats, and um, we had the spirit with us to uh, continue 
making a sound. And luckily, there was enough tape on the spool to be able to capture what we did. I know, because a lot of It was a completely spontaneous, uh, improvised composition. Because it's interesting how the album has come together, because obviously you've got a lot of songs which are kind of almost 90 seconds to two minutes, and then you've got (laughs) one or two epic tracks. Yeah. So how did did that creative process sort of... I mean, you just sort of said you just kind of kept the tape running, but I just just wondered, because you you were so sort of crafted in the sort of the, the kind of fine art of sort of... Uh, less is more and sort of keeping it very tight and then sort of came out with almost these prog rock numbers on, you know like there was three songs which are quite um yes harmony in the bathroom being one mm-hmm. and then you had the um uh, yes adventure in, into basketry and i think there was another track which was also quite a long one as well wasn't there so i yes i just wondered how did that, that sort of get received from the general public well a lot of people were a bit sort of uh com- confused by it because uh we were dealing with uh, a number of taboos here. I mean, in the punk uh, era, uh, a lot of people uh, were suspicious about anything which remotely uh, suggested um, progressive rock or any anything like that. But um, we were listening to German groups, you know, um, Can and Faust, and uh, one thing we learned from them was to use our intuition and our imagination and follow our instincts. And uh, also, it wasn't like uh, a hierarchical situation where there was a singer or a guitarist sort of um, writing all the material and giving it to the others and um, and them learning their parts. It was more democratic like that. And a lot of the German groups uh, seemed to work on that basis. You know, it's more of a collective view rather than a hierarchy situation. See what I mean? Yes. And one thing that a lot of bands often struggle with, especially on that first album, is getting a, a producer or engineer to capture what they <laughs> what they want. Did you mm. manage to sort of navigate that situation? Well, we were the clients at that studio. The thing was, we produced our own recordings uh, independently, and we we owned the copyright, which is very important. If um, one is, if one was working for a, a major company or even some of the independent companies, they'd pay for the studio time and they'd own the copyright for the recording. So uh, they'd have more control over the result. But we had total control over the result yes. of the recording sessions. Yes. So we were able to uh, tell the engineer in this case uh, John Rivers at Woodbine Street Studios in Leamington who was a, a very good ally in actual fact but he, he was sympathetic to what we were trying to do and um, he was a bit his mind was a bit blown by it at first um, but uh, we developed a good rapport with him and he was able to capture and translate what we want wanted yes, yes. Because it was uh, on the label front, that was kind of rather records and stroke rough trade, wasn't it? 
Well, yes, we did our first single uh, on Rather, which was, uh, and and we sort of hawked it round different shops and found a couple of distributors. But uh, Rough Trade offered us a, um, a very generous uh, proposition where they'd helped get the the next couple of records manufactured so we didn't have to uh, bother about all that. They'd handle all that and they'd uh, they'd have sole rights to the distribution. But uh, we still had sole... Um, we still had total control in the studio and we just sort of handed over the tapes when we'd finished mixing them. Yeah, and did... said... Uh, Passed uh, the um, the process on to them. Did you have a manager at that stage, or were you? No way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, how was your decision making process? Because often that's a bit of an interesting dynamic as well. When you've got. A... Oh yes, naturally. Well, we uh, we we did have pretty intense discussions sometimes about uh, certain things, like you know. Uh, it was mainly about the sequence of an album or editing or um, details like that. And uh, But uh, most of it was very amicable, I must say. Yes. I mean, was and, the... um Go on. I was going to say, when you came to doing the, sort of the, the second and final album, so as Jane from Occupied Europe, what was the... Di- I just wonder what the dynamic was like with the band because obviously being relatively young and sort of doing music yeah. there's often sort of a series of sort of I don't know I suppose a combination of kind of egos and enthusiasm and creativity and drugs and drink involved so I just wondered how how that was sort drugs of some drink drugs and drink remember we do you remember that well oddly enough uh, I remember some people at the time when they listened to Jane I would listen to Trip to Marineville in particular. They said, wow, you must have been high on something. That's pretty wild, uh, imaginative uh, record. And uh, people thought we were sort of um, spaced out or high or something. But no, no, I mean, we were all always completely straight in the studio. Bit of coffee, that's it. Yes. And, um, well, Jane from Occupied Europe, there was a different dynamic by the time we'd finished that because we'd broken up and uh, we had to try and come to an agreement about the way it was edited together after we'd broken up. It was all recorded before we broke up, but um, there you go. Yes. God, it's one of those situations. I remember there was a band in the 60s who made one of those classic albums, God, When Mine's Gone Blank, and they kind of broke up and then... 30 years later, you know, everyone hails that particular album as, as a classic, which um, mm. it will come to me in about five minutes, which album that was. But they, yes, it was, oh God, I should edit this bit out, but I won't. Um, yeah, so mm-hmm. was, was it the same thing that you'd, I mean, it's kind of an unusual situation to to kind of be in when you when you sort of, um, yeah, have done an album, but then decided you, you're not that bothered with the band anymore. Well, we were very proud of that album and we all enjoyed making it and I think it's a fantastic collection of recordings. I'm, there's a couple of little details I, I wasn't quite happy with and we, we had a bit of a um, uh, 
disagreement about it at the time. But you know, I I'm prepared to let that let that go. Really. Yes. Actually, I just remembered it was the Zombies and they did an album called Odyssey and Oracle, mm. which I think they'd recorded, decided they'd had enough. And ah. So the album didn't do anything. And then 30 or 40 years later, lots of people started mm. talking about it and they had to reform and start playing it live. Which, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which, which found it. So, yeah. So what was the sort of particular tracks that were pr- problematic with the band on that album? Well, there was uh, a long piece called Collision with the Frogman uh which went into uh the mangrove delta plan and uh, i wasn't quite uh, convinced about the way it was eventually uh edited and uh i was more in favor of keeping the two pieces separate personally but uh, you know well, i think it works okay I- i'll they were both improvised pieces, and uh, yes, and um, yeah, if I remember correctly, it was it was mainly Nicky and my uh, ideas which went into that one. I did the bass line, and he says, "I've got this guitar riff. Let's see if it works." And it, it worked remarkably well together. So uh, we. Uh, stuck it down straight away it was quite fortuitous yes and did you have a moment where you um all sat down to decide that that was to quote ziggy stardust the end or <laughs> your final or did you just, just one day oh we uh we broke up on tour in italy oh blimey you were even abroad mm. was it coming did you sort of was it was it in the air well <laughs> it was our first ever tour <laughs> And perhaps we realised that um, we'd grown apart a bit as people. Yes, my God. Was it a kind of Spinal Tap meets Bad News sort of moment? Uh... <laughs> I just went, were you in a camp, were you in a van or were you in a hotel? Yeah, we well, uh, both. We were travelling around in a van, most of us, and uh, we were camped out in various hotels dotted around Italy. Well, I mean, in some ways, it was an enjoyable trip, but in other ways, uh, it became clear that um, working with each other beyond that was going to be a problem. Yes. On a personal level. Really. Did Did you finish when you'd sort of also done all your commitments touring, or did you still have dates that you needed to do? But Well, we had to cancel a few things, like we were due to go to America it seems but um, we um, I think uh, we we um, I think our decision was the correct one yes was it musical differences I mean was it more that partly yes yes and partly just live well I mean it was an alliance which was not fated to last for a long time anyway. Well, I mean, we could have strung it out a bit longer uh, if we'd have been less stubborn as people. We were all very stubborn. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, it was one of these bands where there was a, uh, a lot of strong personalities involved and a, a bit of stubbornness, which yes. um, 
um, doesn't always work out well in the long term, you know. No. And was that the last time you saw Nicky and... Um... No way. No. Um, I, um, me and Nicky were a little bit cool to each other for a couple of years, but then we started bumping into each other on, the, on tour in yes. different outfits, you know. And uh, straight after that, I did a project with Epic and another one with Phones, you know. Yes. And so, interestingly, because you'd been sort of doing music since, well, for most of the 70s, and a lot of people, after about five years, think, that's it, I, I don't want to do this anymore, I'm going to get a job. But you you sort of bounced straight into a solo career, which was yeah. know, with the pincer move. And sort of oh. dur- during that time, which was quite interesting, was that there was a lot of, you know, unemployment. We'd had got the mm-hmm. you know, Thatcher government in. There oh, was the Falklands. Yeah. There was the, the miners' strike sort of bubbling away. And, and Oh, the uh, 80s were a really dark time as well, yeah. It, it wasn't much oh, fun. Though the, I have great. to say, the music was fantastic. Yeah. I just, you know, it's, it's important to remember that it was quite a grim time as well. So a lot of people were claiming unemployment and uh, job seekers lounge or enterprise mm. lounge schemes. So that kind of helped a lot of those bands that, you know, became the indie scene. Oh, uh, yeah, I suppose kind of, so, yeah. It was kind of a, almost like a grant, but indirectly. But then with your, the pincer movement, which you came out in 82, I mean, I know people are a bit obsessed, me included, about like scenes. So you had that punk, post-punk, then you had sort of indie. <laughs> I mean, did you sort of feel like an elder statesman sort of sort of <laughs> navigating these waters well uh to me it felt like i had to start from scratch again with pincer movement because um uh swell maps i mean at the end of the 70s uh we did actually seem to uh, gain a certain notoriety and even um quite a following uh to our pleasure and uh, surprise but you know well once we'd split up um all of us found it uh, a bit of a struggle sort of um uh getting interest in our new project it's 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 often the way you know uh and uh, public tastes move on i mean in the early 80s um there was less interest in um adventurous sounds and people more getting into pop music again and uh, pop music seemed to be fashionable and um we we were all in our different ways trying to find a a niche you know and um well i it was very clear what i felt i ought to do i wanted to make a, a record which was um a bit less noisy but still with experimental sounds and uh, using different kinds of tools, you know, drum machines, and uh, a lot of it's about using voices and found objects. And um, it was the record I wanted to make at the time, and I still think it's, it stands up very well. Yes, because cause then you went on with the sort of the next album, which was the one um, in 86. You started to collaborate with quite a few different people including Carmel oh yeah that's right yeah well um I knew her in Manchester and um me and Epic were working on a project together called Daga 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 and um we had some tracks which uh, sounded quite sort of uh danceable some of them and we were working on um 
rhythms and uh, grooves. Yes. It was that kind of project. But it still sounded very odd. And there were some very strange um, uses of uh, instrumentation on it. And uh, so we asked Carmel to contribute on a couple of tracks. And it worked really well. Uh, we were very grateful to her for that. Because um, it was very different to what she was doing. Yes. Which is a bit more conventional, a bit more retro, let's say. Well, the and, uh, the 80s she's was good sport. Yes, excellent. But the the 80s were quite strange because you had that Trevor Horn production of the mainstream charts. Oh yeah, yeah, very synthetic, very um, phenomenally synthetic, and then very you, technological. And then you had that kind of what was John Peel playing kind of stuff, which could it be anything from the Smiths to the Copter Twins to Napalm Death, though they might come a bit later. Mm. But you know that, that there was a lot of kind of bands that were also sort of like I suppose there were a few like Big Flame. Stump and Bogshed. Yeah, there was still a certain amount of experimentation happening. Yes, uh, yes. There was a lot of interesting music happening around then. And it was that time uh, when I joined the television personalities, I suppose, the uh, mid eighties. Yes, which was always good because that's what that you mentioned that a little bit earlier. The one thing that a lot of the the indie bands that I'd interviewed, you know, the the thing that sort of finished them off as the 80s progressed towards the latter half, was kind of the, the ecstasy scene and the drugs. Oh, because, yeah, the late 80s, Because yeah. suddenly everyone wanted dance music or dance music. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. And so Jingly Jang... Rave culture and um, yes. ecstasy and, um, yeah, baggy scene and uh, things like that, yeah. It did knock them out. But then you were sort of, there were a few artists like, you know, obviously yourself and people like Momus and Felt who sort of ploughed on regardless of, of anything. Because there was quite a few people who, when I asked you know, why they kind of decided to call it a day after having quite a lot of you know, success, mm. just said, well, nobody was interested in us. We couldn't, you know, our fans weren't even coming to the shows and the record, you know, we weren't getting any pre publicity or press. So it felt like nobody had, you know, had they'd sort of like were stuck in the kitchen doing the mm. washing up at a party really than <laughs> there throwing some moves so did you well with the tvps uh with the television personalities um we uh when i joined in 1984 we'd already uh dan tracy had already managed to establish a kind of little niche for his particular style because he was a real uh catalyst for what came along later with the creation label Alan McGee's bands you know yes and uh, Dan Tracy's television personalities were enormously influential uh, in a whole array of bands on the UK scene and beyond let's face it in Europe and in America and uh, it was I I was delighted to be asked to contribute to that band, so I, um, I was with Dan for 10 years in the TVP, yeah. and we did a lot of great records, I think. And, uh, well, we managed to cultivate that niche and uh, gain a, a good following, particularly in Europe. And we went to the America a couple of times, Japan a couple of times, you know. Yeah, and and because a few people, I know there was a few bands from Sheffield, or one in particular, I think a thousand vi violins. Who used to yeah, sing, yeah, I remember them. Yeah, brilliant to, band. Yes, and they used to come down and stay with ja Dan. Yeah, well, they're on Dan's label. Wham. 
Uh, Dream World. Dream actually. World. It wasn't there, was it? Yes. So did you, I mean, and, and again, you know, there were the latter, and then towards the end of the decade, you had, um, yeah, the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters as well, actually. Yes, they were so, on Dream World so was as well. So was Dan quite almost like one of those characters, a bit like Andy Warhol? Did he just draw a lot of people to him? Well, Dan ha- was... Um, making his first music when Swell Maps were making our first music, you see. It was an exact uh, contemporary, contemporaneous... um, Oh, let me start again. Uh, Dan made his first record with the television personalities when Swell Maps made our first record uh, with Red About Seymour on our first label. So, you know, it was exactly at the same time. It was like, um, it was like a, uh, a coincidence, or you could say it was um, a blessing that we, that we met each other and we encouraged each other and we supported each other in our efforts. Because, you know, uh, these, this was the birth of the, the DIY... Uh, artist-led l- label because nobody was doing it before then, really. Yes. Uh, perhaps the Desperate Bicycles and the Buzzcocks, those two singles were an important catalyst when the Buzzcocks did their own first record, uh, an EP with Boredom and Time's Up. Brilliant record. Now, it might have been... Uh, early 1977, I think, on their own New Hormones label run by their manager, Richard Boone, another notable figure. And uh, shortly after that, I think Desperate Bicycles released their first single on their own uh, little label, and that inspired us to do ours. Yeah. And it inspired Dan, I think, as well. Absolutely. I mean, but but at that time... Was there also sort of a certain amount of creative madness going on? Because it sounded like <laughs> from from the, the, that kind of London scene of squats and I don't know, probably a bit of you know drinking and drugs going on. Sometimes people will start to become slightly damaged or sort of deluded in, or both really. I just wondered how how that was kind of coping. Well, uh, like you say uh, about the housing situation. I mean, um, in London. Um, it became evident that there were certain parts of London which were easy to uh, find somewhere to live uh, because uh, uh, the rents were either low or uh, one could find um, an empty house somewhere or um, there was a profusion of uh, housing cooperatives as well which provided cheap um way to survive yes and um that's not possible anymore because the situation's changed completely but yeah i um i've lived in stoke newington and hackney for um well since 1980 now and um i always found that uh hackney was a kind of um an alternative sort of scene around here. And it still is to a certain extent, but um, it's more difficult for 
um, people to establish themselves because of the it's always down to housing and it's um, to a certain extent about surviving and trying to make a living as well yeah. I mean I'm, I'm fortunate I managed to uh, make a living out of music and art, uh, but it's not easy for everybody, I know that. No, and also at that time, because there was a lot of bands coming from Scotland, Scotland, possibly, but Australia, New Zealand, and, and even mm. Canada and right. America, and sort of were able to come to London and squat in an area, which probably also had various members of other bands. So the, <laughs> it, there was that kind of yeah, community. Yeah, it is a groovy scene. Because there yeah. was like the Chills, and there was um, Chills, the, the Triffids, the Go-Betweens, and even a band called the Bambi Sant Lamb, who the lead singer came from mm. sort of Canada. And, and then you had sort of a lot of those little clubs a bit like the uh i don't know that sort of indie scene with anna mcgee is it the the living room or the, the yeah room? that's right oh i used to go to most of the gigs. Uh, most of the gigs yeah. uh, that alan put on and then yeah had... i mean uh the, the rough trade scene in particular in the late 70s and early 80s was brilliant you know uh, i'd go down there to sort something out for a swell maps record sort of do a flyer or help organize um a gig, and uh, you know, there'd be uh, the guys from the pop group there, there would be the raincoats hanging around, or maybe, and uh, Pragvec, Kleenex from Switzerland, they'd sometimes come over, and uh, all these people, and uh, you know, is it, a great sort of um, helping each other out and uh, sharing bills at gigs and uh, so on. Like that. Yes, and then you had the ambulance station with the yeah <laughs> with the famous Gordon. Yeah, that's right. Gordon set up the ambulance station. Uh, that was a a squatted venue in an old derelict building, which he um, managed to set up as a venue. And I played there a number of times, either with the television personalities or with my own band at the time, the Palookas. Yes which were another one of your amazing um, sort of sort of work. So as, as we trucked into the 90s, what was your sort of musical journey from then? Because the 80s, obviously the 70s, very busy, 80s, the 90s. Ah, oh, the 90s, yeah. Well, um, I parted company with Dan Tracy in 94, and I um, it was like, Starting again from scratch, really. I um, started a succession of bands. There was Olive's Hairy Custard with a couple of Australian friends who um, who lived around here. Yes. And uh, there was the House Hunters, which I set, I started with my girlfriend. That was fun. And that sort of tapped into the Scottish scene because... Um, a uh, Scottish label picked us up and issued our first couple of records, 53rd and 3rd. That was set up by Stephen Pastel and uh, a sponsor. Yes, 53rd and 3rd. Are you still there? From, uh, 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 no, um, that label only lasted a couple of years, actually. But, but they did stuff like the Vaselines and um, the shop BMX Bandits. Shop Assistants, yeah. Great label. Great label. They were great. Mm. And they had um, 
I don't think it was the guy who did Orange Juice. Alan Horn, he, but he was a, he was a different character. Well, mm. I think he was in a different scene, but still in Scotland. But anyway, oh, that, that was that was more the eighties actually, but the nineties. Yeah, there's olives, hairy custard, and um, after that, I started a band called the Demi Mond. Yes, and this lasted a bit longer. Yeah, that's right. Well, there were different versions of the Demi Mond. That sort of evolved out of um, a previous group called. Angel Racing Food, which I set up with uh, Lee McFadden, who I still play with. Uh, he's been a, a trusted friend and collaborator for many, many years now. He plays. Uh, we, we played in a band called Long Decline together. I said, hey, Lee, let's uh, start a band. And he says, you got any songs? I said, yeah, I've got loads of songs. Let's do it. <laughs> so we got a friend called Mick Frangu to play the drums and then... Um, it kind of evolved through there, but it evolved so far, and then I thought, uh, I want something a bit different, less guitar-driven. So I fancied this band called the Demimond, which uh, had sounded a bit more exotic, yes. with um, lots of, a uh, bit of electronics, you know, some acoustic instruments and different voices. I didn't want it just to be me singing, so uh, a friend called um, Catherine Gabrantz, uh, I featured her voice a lot. And she's still with me in a band that's evolved since the Demimon, which is called Infernal Contraption, which is one of the current projects. You, you do love a project, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I've got a couple other on the uh, I can, the I can as well. see they are. But did you, I mean, never, you know, as we were trucking through life, you know, obviously things kind of happen and, and sort of the, the world of Dan Tracy is quite a sad story, isn't it? Because he... Ah, yes, that's, sadly. That's not a good chapter. True. And it doesn't sort of, I mean, a bit like the guy from the Bay City Rollers, though I think he's he's got, you know, doing a few dates huh? now. Oh, well, you know, I don't uh, know. But he got sort of completely ripped off and then the manager took all his money and his property. Uh, so he kind of ended up living in a tra you know, rather tragic way after selling uh, billions of records. But that's mm. that's another story if you want to feel, I don't lucky that you're not here. Then. Not an exact comparison, perhaps. But no. Uh, I, I agree they're both um, distressing Stories, stories, yes. Yeah, so how did you cope when you hear kind of those, like what happened with Dan and his kind of kind of well-being, his mental health well-being? Well, I really feared the worst when I heard that Dan had had a, uh, an accident and he was in hospital, but um, uh, he survived uh, an operation, and a major operation, and uh, he's still... I still visit him regularly, and I'm glad he's alive. But, um, you know, uh, I try to be philosophical and, and think, well, you know, it could be worse. Yes, but he did also, I mean, he had the 90s where he ended up in, I think, prison, didn't he, for sort of various problems. That's which, true, yes, which, yes. Which is kind of, that's, that's even more, no, I don't know about it, even more depressing, but it's kind of like, oh, God, that's... Yes, I was... Uh, I was um, I was very distressed when I heard about that, yes. But um, after he came out of prison, he got some uh, good backing uh, from, was it Heavenly Records? And they put out uh, an album for him. And I thought, wow, yeah, brilliant. He's got on his feet again. Yes. But apart from the ups and downs, that is the murky world of rock and roll. As Hunter, mm. I can remember there was a great quote by Hunter S. Thompson about... <laughs> 
life in, in, in music. So your current project, because obviously you're still sort of with the demi, demigods. No, Demi-monde. Demi-monde. Um, yes, I know. I oh, know. Uh, the Demi-monde ceased to exist a couple of years ago, uh, uh, but uh, Infernal Contraption evolved out of it. Yes, which then brought you onto Easy Action Records. Ah, yes. Widdishins? Widdishins is my new album, which is a double album uh, I released through them, yes. And that has a very... Uh, Arcadia pastoral feel, you know. I've, really? I, I, well, mm. I it does. It's got. It sort of. It, there's a nod to old times. I thought. Um, when, when well, I, some of it, I'd agree. Yes, some of it, less so. Yes, there was just a couple of songs which had a, a quite a folk background to it. A sort of. Mm, yes, I wanted to have uh, an element of that on this album. But I didn't want it to be just that. That's why I expanded it into a, a double album. So there'd be other facets of my musical journey in the last couple of years. Plus, was, it, was, was there a spiritual quality to it? I, I hope so. Yes, I hope that comes across. It does come across. I just remember, I'm, you know, having been obsessed with music all my life, I suppose, but not, you know, not saying I'm, I'm, I'm an expert at all, heaven forbid. But I just kind of, those moments, listen to the, the incredible string band and bands like that. Plus, oh, yes, I dig them. But, um, yes, I have to say, when I ever say dig to someone, they often laugh at me. It's a bit like saying groovy, isn't it, really? But, <laughs> <laughs> but Let them laugh. Let them laugh. And, and they do. And um, it's only a good thing. So, yes, yeah, so what are you working on at the moment to, to follow this up? Because, I mean, that just came out last year. And I just wondered, I mean, you obviously got this prolific output and, and sort of doing such a lot of creative stuff. But, I mean, how do you make it all work, you know, as in sort of having the time to do this and pay the rent, I suppose. That's kind of what I'm trying to ask. <laughs> well, I work full-time, uh, self-employed as a musician and artist, and um, I know it's not easy, and uh, my income is rather unpredictable. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm just determined to be as productive as I can for as long as I can and make the most of my opportunities and and uh, things are going well at the moment and uh, bearing fruit and I want to continue to be creative and productive as long as I'm able yes. and uh, I've got enough people encouraging me to uh, to help realize that and uh, as well as the infernal contraption I've got a um, collaboration with Jasmine Pender called uh, The Eleventh Hour Adventists. We've done an album together recently as well. And I also work with a band called Rude Mechanicals. We're playing live tonight. I play synthesizer and uh, zither and lead guitar for them. I also um, play in a band with Rose McDowell, who's from Strawberry Switchblade. Oh. I'm in an accompanying role for her as well. I, I play, again, synthesizer and uh, lead guitar for her. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I do some solo gigs, and I'm also doing some work with my girlfriend, who calls herself Queen Christina. 
We've got a new single coming soon, written by her. She helped on Widdershins, actually, my solo album. She contributed to four tracks on that. Yes. And one of which uh, was her own composition. Oh, was it? Did you? Did you? I don't know. Did you ever listen to the world of world of um, Richie Blackmore when he he did a couple of albums with his wife, which were quite folk orientated? Um, no. I don't blame you, but they, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it was quite, it was quite a it was very unlike Deep Purple, put it that way. But it was very sort of quite. I don't know. I was going to say the word sweet, but that sounds. Oh, weird. Christina isn't into folk all that stuff. She isn't. Nah. I don't know, but Rose is, though, isn't she? Rose? Uh, Rose, yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, she, um, after Strawberry Switchblade, she started doing things which were um, more acoustically driven, I suppose. Yes. And then you get the occasional call from people to say, could you write? Some, some notes for a band. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, well, I mean, I, I, get, um, I get to go on the radio a lot, which is fun, you know, and uh, it's good to talk and philosophise about uh, music and the world uh, more broader than that, I suppose, more things in general. Yes. Phil- yeah. And I so, like to... Uh, so on the curiosity front, you did your the, the notes for the hangman's... Beautiful daughters mm. with an S. Um, did you? Were you? Is that because you're writing, or because you just happen to know a lot about the band? Well, you'll have to ask the bloke who asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I think a uh, uh, combination. I hope. Right. I, I do. I can recall what happened in the 1980s. <laughs> Excellent. And, what, and uh, my experiences with that band. Nice. And also I can... I, Were you objective? I I, Was it quite an objective overview? Ooh, not for me to say. I, I, I try to be objective, yes. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, but then what's the point in being objective all the time? I One know. has to be passionate and have an interest in one's subject. This is true. I know. Well, I mean, you've been nearly five decades in music. What would you, what would you wow. say to... I know, it's quite boggling, <laughs> isn't it? What would you say to an 18-year-old self who was kind of starting out? I just wonder if there was something that you've picked up on the way that you kind of think, God, I wish someone had just whispered that in my ear when I was beginning this, this interest in life. I would say don't compromise and uh, be true to yourself and listen to others, but don't follow them. Don't follow them. That's good. If you have a vision, pursue it. Yeah, because I did an interview recently with the English, the the oh god, Martin Newell, the greatest English. Oh god, I can't remember the title. What he calls himself, and he's done a prolific amount of work from the Venus, the Venus Cleaners, or something like that. Through oh, the Cleaners from Venus. Yeah, I I I got contacted by the director of that film. He wants to do something together soon. Yes, is that to coincidentally? I know. And is that to do your life story? Hmm? I, I just wondered, because you've got a lot of history, whether you're, and you're probably an archivist, just whether you're going to write your kind of life story or have even a, a film. Oh, I have got time to look back at the moment. No. But is, is there something, you know, do you ever think, oh, that could be quite interesting? Because you have a lot of history and a lot well, of... Well, yeah, but uh, I, I've got too much going on at the moment to, to 
look over my shoulder, really. But, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I don't mind talking about what I've done before yes. from time to time. But, you know, I haven't got time to write a, a, a memoir at the moment. No. But... Um, have you archived, I, have you archived your, your... Well, you've got the music. I just wonder if you've got all the other bits and pieces. Bits and pieces? Well, outfits... Uniform, you know. I went. We went Outfits. Well, My God, I mean, I wear things until they fall apart, then I throw them away. <laughs> I just well, sort of My ex- costume department. Yes, your, the B and A exhibition. <laughs> oh, it's true. Come on. No, oh, but I, I just moved want... house so many times under rather desperate straits. Sometimes I don't sort of. Uh, I used to travel light. Yes, that's a good. I idea. didn't really. Oh yeah. Well, I just used to wear any old. Weird tat I could find sometimes, yeah, and uh, wear it till it fell to bits, or give it away, or swap clothes. I used to swap clothes with Nicky Sudden sometimes. Yeah, we were pretty tight at that time, you know. Absolutely. Well, when you're into clothes swapping, that is pretty tight. You can't get more tighter, can you? <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want to swap clothes with just any old person. I no, mean, damn right. And also, I mean, it is kind of one of those sad facts of life that. The Swell Maps, I mean, quite a few of the members passed away. I mean, that, well, two. that's half the band, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. That, that must feel quite difficult sometimes to look back on that period. And, yes, of course. And remember those kind of like people, because it's like sometimes you think, oh, you know, it would have been nice to have had a bit more of a, a life together and to experience, you know. A period, another period as you got yes, older. Yes, it's desperately sad when Epic died and then it was uh, devastating when Nicky died later, yes. Yeah, and I just, um, yeah, it's just kind of, sometimes you feel like there's unfinished business in a positive way, not in a... Well, yes, exactly. That's always the problem with mourning, isn't it? Yeah, and that's, um, yeah, I know, but it's, it's kind of a tricky one. And it often gives you a sense of, um, I don't know, reflection and sort of... Of course. How reflect you know how lucky one is to still be yes. trucking on, even though the world has gone a bit bonkers. Well, it always was, really, wasn't it? <laughs> it was never looking good, but um, yes. it was always a bit bonkers, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Anyway, look, this has been great. I'm so mm. pleased we managed to get there in the end, and I'll have to uh, you know just say I'll sort of have a look around at what venues and and yeah places and potential potential promoters there are for. Gigs in Norwich. Oh, in Norwich, yeah, that'd be cool, yeah. Because did you ever pl- have you ever played Norwich? Nope. I've been through there uh, once or twice, uh, just sort of passing through, but I've never played there, no. No, well, that yeah. would be good. I'll have to, yeah, there's a few venues about, so, um, and do you, is this kind of a, your solos, you know, the, the kind of stuff that you're doing? Well, I've been playing more solo shows with my iPod and my guitar recently, and it's worked out well. So uh, I'd like to do a few more. It, it makes me very mobile and very, very. Um, I can, I can get to places where it'd be difficult with a band, you know. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, most of my pals, sadly, have to work um, during the week, and um, yes. Uh, time-wise, it's difficult, and other logistical problems as well. It's just uh, handy for me to nip on a train, 
with an iPad and a guitar and um, turn up somewhere, and it's uh, it's enjoyable. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll keep my eye out, and I'll 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 um have a look at a venue which is down on King Street to see what their their scene is. But it could be a nice thing to do. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Look, this is great. Well, thank you ever so much for your time, and I'll tell you when I put it out, and also. I'll send you a link so then you can always put it on your social media platforms. <laughs> yeah, great. Because we love them. Yeah. <laughs> with, with, with anyway, look, have a lovely afternoon and a great gig tonight. I don't think. Oh, we, thanks. I think the winds died down. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, yeah, it was pretty um, vile early, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, there was a few moments where I, mm. I started looking at trees wobbling, thinking. Mm. I was. I just been sent some video links on Vimeo from a friend in America who uh, came round with a film crew uh, in September, and uh, yeah, that was great. I'd forgotten about all this, but um, uh, he's interviewing me for. Um, a film version of a book called, uh, I think it's called The Scene in Between or something like this. Oh. Uh, a, a book which was quite, um, went down quite well a couple of years back, I think. Oh, was um, that Sam Neill? Yeah, that sounds familiar. And he did a lot, there's a lot of Scottish indie bands, weren't there, in there, with kind of mop top hair and baggy jumpers, as in unfashionable jumpers. Uh, oh, why, I, um, yeah, yeah, that's one of them. Oh, well, there were a couple of uh, books about the indie scene uh, quite close together. Yes. So this uh, is... Uh, a, was it... Um, there was a guy called Neil Taylor who did a book called C86 and all that, and then there was a guy called Neil, Sam Neil, who did a book called The Scene in Between, which was kind of and, mostly um, f- photographs. I do believe... Break it up and start again. Uh, oh, right. God, I can't remember. Oh, never mind. Uh, I'm just uh, waffling here. Yes. So there was a guy from... I can't remember, uh, I can't remember the name of the book offhand, but so uh, they're making a film and they interviewed me. And uh, I. Oh, uh, Orange uh, Juice. Uh, yeah. What was the name of that song? Rip it up and start again. Rip it up and start it again. Yeah, yeah there was a book by some uh, journalist uh, called Rip It Up and Start Again. I think it's based on that book. That's right. Oh, I think his name is Simon Reynolds. Yes, that's the one I was trying to think of, yeah. God, I'm amazed my memory. I'm, not, I'm normally rubbish at that moment, a bit like my um, moment with the zombies and um, Oracle. Mm. And yeah, I think they're making a book, a uh, film based on that book and um, they're interviewing people like me from the post-punk scene. Oh. And, um... Yes. And, uh... They asked me to play some music, just sort of off the cuff, so I improvised something. That's rather nice. I, I was pleasantly surprised. Excellent. Oh, look, the clock's Anyway, look, it's look, uh, gone three now. I'd, it's gone three. I'd, you've, you've, I'd, you wanna... I've got to get prepared. Yeah, you've got to put, you get to make up. And, um, get me skates on. Get your, get your wardrobe department sorted. <laughs> anyway, look, this has been great, Stephen. I'll tell you when this comes out. Yeah, if you want me to send you any um, samples of audio, I'd be pleased to do that. Brilliant. Do you have MP3s of some of them? Mm, yeah, I suppose so. That's good. We love them. Okay, mm. well, look, thank you ever so much, and have a lovely afternoon and evening. Okie dokie. Take care. 
Bye. Bye.